Hello and welcome, and thank you for joining. I'm your host, Seth Haskin. I started this podcast to dive deeper into the ways we know one another and God. The goal is to ask the question of how God loves. As we dive deeper into personifying God, we have to bring him into our three-dimensional world, but also understand that he lives in another state of being, the fourth dimension. I would love to welcome and thank our guest today. He is a historian who is involved in the academic podcast world. With a bachelor's from Bethel College and a master's from University of Minnesota, our guest enjoys working in, working in and with media production to help inform and teach history. He is passionate about teaching context and about events and people of the past. Let us welcome Professor Sam Mulberry. Great to be here. Good to be here as well. What can you say about yourself? Uh, well, I am a. I not only teach at Bethel, I'm a Bethel grad. So I grew up in uh, in southern Minnesota. Um, and actually, we're talking about context, so I'll give you a little context for me. Mm-hmm. I was born in 1977, which means I grew up um, kind of in. I, I'm I'm you know generationally in kind of a weird place because I'm a very late Gen Xer. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't identify as an early millennial. I I identify mm-hmm. as a late Gen Xer, but that means like I grew up pre-internet. The yeah. first time I was ever online I was in college. Um, so I grew up in uh, first 18 years of my life were, you know, before all of that, before that connectedness. Mm-hmm. And then I came to college and all of a sudden hyper connectivity started. Yeah. Um, so that's a, definitely a part of my life. I also grew up very interested in technology. So I, my uh, major when I came to college was computer science. That's mm-hmm. what I was planning on doing. Um, and actually taking a course like Christianity, Western culture, uh, changed my life. Like mm-hmm. I, I fell in love with that class. I started a TA for it and I, um, within the first month of being a TA, I just, I had like a conversion experience. I was standing up in front of a group of about 80 students in the week of the test, um, leading a workshop. And I just had this moment of clarity where I was like, this, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And th- I went and changed my major like the next day <laughs> um, from something very practical, computer science, especially in 1996, yeah. super practical to history. And my dream, uh, if you had asked me, you know, what is your absolute dream career? It would be, I wanted to teach a class like CWC. Mm. Uh, and then uh, I ended up teach. I've been teaching here since 2001. Um, so I've been doing that. I've, I've, you know, kind of got my dream job at age 24. I started teaching here um, and I've been been here ever since. This is my 21st year at Bethel, my 21st year teaching uh, teaching this course. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd say another important part to my story, um, which makes me a, a weird fit for Bethel as a mm-hmm. student, is that I grew up Catholic. Okay. Um, so I'm a product of uh, Catholic school education all the way through high school. So Bethel was a kind of a weird choice uh, of a college. Mm-hmm. Um, but Especially it also, since it's Baptist. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it, it really informs uh, my my growing up Catholic really informs a lot of how I think about spirituality, how I think mm-hmm. about religion. But then also my experiences at Bethel and especially <clears throat> Bethel's pietist tradition deeply impacts the way I think about mm-hmm. uh, I think about faith. Now, the one part of my story that I haven't told yet is the year between graduating from Bethel and um and going to graduate school at the University of Minnesota, um, I sp- spent one year, I moved to Mobile, Alabama through a really? Catholic volunteer program. And I lived with monks for a year. And wow. taught, I taught art at a high school in Mobile, Alabama and lived a monastic life for a year. I had no intention of becoming a monk, but like that was part of the program. And uh, so, so like, it's like I, I grew up Catholic. Then I came to Bethel and did this kind of 
pietist Protestant thing for four years. Then I like dove about as deep as you could back into Catholicism for a year. Um, so I would say, you know, part of my faith journey is not one of turning my back on a tradition, but more like continuing to expand my vision of the traditions that inform me. So like I, I, I'm hard pressed to say, well, when did I stop being a Catholic? Well, I could tell you when I stopped going to mass, but it's not like, <laughs> but that doesn't mean I'm still not deeply informed by Catholicism. That's mm-hmm. a, it's a big part of me. It's a big part of how I think about these things, but so is uh, the Baptist church, but especially the pietist movement. I mean, mm-hmm. so, th- so those are big pieces to me. Yeah. Well, that's fun. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's so interesting because Bethel is a lot of, um, Baptist or Anabaptist or Pentecostal, like you see that here at Bethel. But there are the uh, Lutherans and the Catholics are here as well. And I feel like they go unnoticed a lot mm-hmm. of times. Oh, sure. Um, um, so I know someone who's raised Catholic and they still go to Mass and stuff. And so like, I need to go to Mass because I'm sure I would enjoy it. You should. I just, you, yeah. you really, really should. I mean, one of the things, so I've, I've taught a study abroad uh, course, I think four, four times, um, an interim course where we would we took students to Europe to study World War One, And mm-hmm. that's one of the things, uh, this is with uh, Chris Garrett, who also is one yep. of the coordinators for CWC. And one of the things that we embed into this trip, we don't require it of anyone, but we always seek out, you know, different kinds of churches to go to. So like we like to go to Evensong at Westminster, uh, Westminster Abbey. We like to go to the German cathedral in Munich for mass. We like to take students there. We like to, we like to like uh, use that as an opportunity to expand their religious experience. Cause it's, what's really interesting uh, if you're a student who's never gone to mass is to go to mass in German and be like, yeah. okay, well I don't even know what they're saying but I can still be part of this liturgical experience. It's super, it's great. It's such a, I think it's a really cool experience. Yeah. Plus like going to Europe, those really, really old cathedrals Mm -hmm. built for acoustics. Mm -hmm. And then you just go and enjoy like a strong German mass. Yes. I can only imagine that experience being trans, transcending. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and the, the best is Westminster because, uh, uh, and I will say this, anybody who's ever, uh, if you're ever in England or in London, um, they do it, I think every day, I think it's at five or six and you don't have to pay. So it's, it's, it's a way to get into Westminster for free because mm-hmm. Westminster is pretty spendy to yeah. take the tour, but you can get in for free. So you just have to like, you wait in line. And if you get there early enough, you can sit in the choir loft during Evensong. So like there's this phenomenal choir singing yeah. in Westminster and you're sitting right next to them singing along with them. It's I'm not a musician. I'm not a singer. And like, I am deeply powerfully moved by that experience. So yeah, yeah if you forever, if you're ever in London, like do an even song at, uh, at Westminster is, is amazing. It's on my bucket list now. Didn't right. know about it, but now, now that I do, I'm going to do it there one of these go. days. So, um, yeah. Uh, so we talk about relationships in general on this podcast, but I like to invite people from many walks of life because as long as you have a relationship, I think you can be on this podcast mm-hmm. or just enjoy life in general. But it's always interesting to hear different viewpoints from people and especially like um, academic um, pioneers in like um, uh, their field of study. So um, my first question to you is as a historian – what do you do? What does a day in the life as a historian look it's like? It's funny because when I looked at that question, the first thing I wrote in my notes was, am I a historian? <laughs> like, like I, I am and I, and I am, but like, uh, I mean, there, there's, there's 
different aspects, right? Like there is being a teacher of history, that part of a historian, I feel like I definitely am that, right? Mm -hmm. There's a, a big piece of me. Um, but then the, the like the scholarly side of, of being a historian, you know, at one level I would say, well, I'm not really, like I don't really do historical research. Yeah. I don't. Um, I don't write papers. I don't. I don't do that kind of stuff. And even the stuff that I read and the 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 uh, sources I spend a lot of time on are not typical things. But but at another level, I another thing that a historian does is they collect. Yeah. Um, and they archive and they preserve. Um, so one of the things that uh, you know, if I if I were to die while we're recording this podcast, when they go through my office, you will see stacked five um, external hard drives full of audio recordings and videos and all of this stuff. So like when I, uh, when I was last on sabbatical, I made a documentary film where I interviewed every person that I could get uh, to sit down for an interview mm -hmm. who's ever won the Bethel teaching award um, about teaching. So like, yeah. so what I wanted to do is create like uh, uh, an archive of, you know, what is Bethel as a teaching institution? What does it mean to teach and learn at Bethel? Um, so I sat folks down for, usually they were about 90 minute interviews. Um, and we really got into conversations there. And then I built a big digital archive for that. And, um, and also made a documentary film, which kind of tried to summarize the, yeah. what I learned from that project. So a lot of the sort of work of the historian that I do is more archiving, preserving, you know, these types of things. So we were talking earlier about uh, academic podcasting. Uh, we started podcasting in CWC in 2006, which is about as early as you can yeah. be podcasting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I have over a thousand episodes of podcasts that, that wow. we've been part of. And all of that is preserving Bethel as well. So, you know, in, in terms of, but but not preserving stuff that you might not expect. So yeah. one of our goals, you know, in terms of th even thinking about relationship, one of our goals was to say, what would it feel like to invite students or anyone into the conversations that profs have at lunch? Mm. You know, because you get a bunch of people who are scholars and academics together, like they're going to have some pretty serious conversations. Often they're very serious conversations about, uh, the future of higher education and like, like, and, and what is the meaning of the liberal arts? You like, we, we fall backwards into those conversations all the time, but then those are also cut by all of these other things. Then they're cut by the humor in the relationships that we have and the, the history that we have together. So, you know, part of what we tried to do is to say, like, well, what would it feel like to invite not just a student to lunch, but to invite anyone who wanted to yeah. come to be part of these conversations. So, you know, there's a degree to which that's kind of what we've preserved as well is the stuff that would never appear in an academic journal that would never appear in, uh, you know, an end of year summary of what happened at Bethel or something like that. But it is like, these are the things that we were talking about. Um, so it's possible to go back and, and kind of recreate those things. Yeah. That's very, that's very fun because I feel like, a lot of times there may be this disconnect between professors and students about such topics because there is this like, oh my goodness, they, I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm being stupid, say, uh, by asking this question, but at the same time, the professors could be asking the same question. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so like, it's inviting them into that circle of what academia looks like, uh, creating ideas and battling out those ideas and seeing which ones are like, uh, eh, that's not such a great idea or like, oh, that's actually something worth 
you know, exploring, talking about, researching. Well, and it, and it models inquiry in a good way because, like, when we're sitting around talking, we'll throw out questions and then, you know, sometimes two minutes after asking a question, it's like, I actually don't agree with what I just said. Like, yeah. like I said it and now that we're talking about it, it's like, no, that's not, I don't really, I don't agree with what I'm, what I'm saying now. So now we need to unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, and I, th- and I think it's, it's an attempt to try to break down some of those barriers or some of those walls. Yeah. 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 So my next question is, um, you help run the CWC program Mm -hmm. here at Bethel University. For those who don't know what it means, Christianity in the Western culture, and it just explores um, how the history of Christianity has influenced um, not only Western culture, but like um, how uh, Western culture has influenced Christianity. Absolutely. It's both sides. Um, uh, So tell us what exactly you want students to take away from that and why it's important an important part of learning, especially here at Bethel? I love this question. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, it, it's, it's a couple things. And, and I actually, I want to, again, add some context to even me saying this. Um, this is a course that was started in, I think, January of 1985. Mm-hmm. Four professors were given an interim off to create a course, and this is what they came up with. And actually, one of those professors, uh, Professor Kevin Craig, passed away two days ago. Um, And he was a deeply influential Mm -hmm. uh, prof for me, somebody that I had a chance to not only take classes from but teach with for about a decade. Um, And from the very beginning when they thought about this course, what they were were thinking about is how do we create uh, kind of cultural literacy, Western cultural literacy, but doing it not because Western culture is this perfect thing that we need to celebrate, but because by the mere fact that we're at Bethel, regardless of where you grew up, what your background is, you're attached to Western culture because mm-hmm. this is a Western educational institution, yep. this university. So it's like if we want to critique Western culture, in order to do that, we need to understand it, yes. right? So so part of it is that. Part of it is just like can we create a common cultural uh, understanding of what we mean when we talk about the West because then only then can we start to examine Christianity and start to peel away and say, well, what is Christian and what is Western and are there moments when those things are so bound together that they, we can't really separate them? Yep. And are there moments when maybe we should be separating them? Yep. You know, like I know when I was in college, um, I remember reading a book uh, for a, a project with uh, Roger Olson, who was a theology professor here. I think he's now at Baylor, maybe. I can't remember. He's he's a uh, pretty big shot theologian. Big uh, shot. Yeah. And I had I had the chance to uh, to to do a project where we read this mm-hmm. book together. And part of the book was all about like how through Augustine, how Platonic Christianity is, and, and is it possible mm-hmm. to tease Plato out of Christianity and to sort of look at Christianity as Christianity without the Platonic influences? So those things are mm-hmm. are there, right? Um, so part of it is learning that, but part of it is also realizing that students, uh, their sense of history, and it's not their fault, but it, it's often limited, right? Mm-hmm. And if we think about even like the history of the faith, right? Yep. You can have students who grew up in the the most Bible teaching uh, church, they did Awana, they did all that. They know their Bible backwards and forwards. But if you ask them about Christian history, they may be able to tell you the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then they get to the book of Acts, and that ends. 
And then there's this gap, this little gap in their Christian mm-hmm. history that stretches to the people in their church who have gray hair. And those people are church history for them as well. Mm-hmm. But there's like these 2,000 years where it's like, but what about this? So part of it is recapturing that memory as well because it is it is our story, yep. right? Um, so, so I think that's a big piece of it as well is to, to learn where ideas that we have come from mm-hmm. um, and to wrestle with where they come from and sometimes wrestle with the complexity of the people that they come from. So it is about understanding that context. Um, and I think that's that's a really, really crucial thing. I think it's, it was crucial in 1985. I think in 2021, it could not be more important. And it could not be more important that we learn it in the, the through the means that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's always a challenge to me when I think about history and learning history is, you know, people will often say like, well, why do I need to know this? Like I have a smartphone. I can look this stuff up whenever I need to know it. The problem is if we're relying on outsourcing our understanding of history and really outsourcing our memory Mm -hmm. to the cloud, right? It means that, yes, you can always look up when Constantine was or when Thomas Aquinas was, but if you don't have that stuff in you, it means whenever you encounter a new piece of information, historical information, mm-hmm. you have nothing to connect that to. You have no hooks to hang that on. So it means that doing synthetic thinking, like saying, okay, well, I know this about Aquinas, and now I'm reading about Anselm of Canterbury. And it's like, oh, there's some interesting connections, some interesting conversation we can have there. If you don't already know Aquinas, then Anselm exists in a vacuum. Yep. Right. Or whatever you're studying. So so partially this course is is intentionally designed to set students up to become liberally educated. Right. Yep. They're at a liberal arts institution. So it's about can we build a, a groundwork so that when you get to the next course and somebody mentions Plato or somebody mentions Augustine or somebody mentions Calvin, it's like, oh, I already kind of know a little bit about that. So now I have some hooks to hang that on because that's how learning can sort of build on itself. Yeah. I love how you mentioned like we outsource it to the cloud and it brings up the idea of extension of the mind. Mm-hmm. You know that term? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and people were worried about this when writing came around, right. when public books came around. They were worried about this way before the phone, but I think it's way exaggerated with technology because we are in such an informational fueled age where if you're almost ostracized if you don't know the latest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of people are putting things subconsciously into this phone, the cloud, an extension of their mind, um, and not realizing the harm that it can actually do. Well, and what's interesting about that is we don't only do that with our with history, yep. right? But we do that with our current memories. Yep. I, I have to say, as a, as a parent. I have a, I have two high schoolers and you know so I I go you go to concerts you go to this or that and I'm sitting here watching these parents holding up their phone recording everything for one thing I'm wondering who's ever going to go back and watch this orchestra concert that they're that they're recording like the kids never going to like we're recording lots of stuff we're never going to go back to but another thing is like instead of experiencing it and saying I need to make a memory I need to build the memories in my mind I'm saying, well, instead I'm going to capture it here. And so what's what's ironic is they end up watching this live event through the screen while they're capturing it. Um, and I think we do this in lots and lots of ways. I think the, I mean, when I grew up, there are very few pictures of me in my childhood. I feel like I grew up in the 50s, right? There are very few pictures of me in my childhood because to take a picture was like somebody had to have a camera and then they had to go develop that film. And then that picture had to go somewhere and be preserved. And I think about 
people now, someone your age, like how many, whether you were aware of it or not, just how many like photographs of you exist, right? And like, and and, and in in essence, like instead of remembering who you are, it's like, well, we just we have that all. We can go look at that stuff if we need mm-hmm. it. So like, I I. I'm actually interesting, interested to you as a neuroscience, like what does this do to our brain? Um, I feel it's um, one of those aspects of human development where it's two sides of the same coin. Um, we have this with any type of development in human technology. Um, our brains love shortcuts. Um, that's why stereotypes are so easy to go mm-hmm. to. Implicit biases are so easy. They're just shortcuts. They keep us you know, focused on... Uh, putting energy elsewhere. Um, and for thinking about it from a neuroscience perspective, it allows us to keep so much information that when we take in new information, we have more room, quote mm-hmm. unquote, for it. But at the same time, we keep putting that information away so we have more room, quote unquote. So it's like this weird like, oh, we have this, we can use it. And it's the same thing, like we could not use technology. It's the same mm-hmm. thing with notes. Sure. If I take notes on it, I don't have to be present in that moment, you know, but, but of listening. By, but by taking notes on it, I am building something exactly. in my brain. By the the thing when I'm using, a, a, and I realize a pen and paper is technology. I'm acknowledging yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. But when I use a phone to record something, yes, I very am, different. I am putting far less effort into that, yep. and 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 I'm bypassing the part where it goes through me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 I like to go back to your idea of parents recording, you know, mm-hmm. these moments. And I, it reminds me of this word. I really love this um, um, website and YouTube channel. It's called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. Weird name, I know, but it's so great. He finds words or creates words for experiences that we don't have necessarily words for. Ah. So one is Sonder, you know, the, ex- the realization that everyone is living a vivid life just as you. So like just people watching, as I like Mm -hmm. to call it, you look at them and you're like, wow, that person has a family. They have these intricacies that I see in myself. But one where he came up with was um, Morty, kind of like Memento Mori, Mm -hmm. but I think it's uh, it's spelt a little bit different. Um, And it's basically the desire to capture a fleeting experience. Mm. And it's a great video if you go on the YouTube channel and watch it. But um, it's like um, he ends the video with like, ah, I guess you had to be there, (laughs) you know? Um, I think it's so interesting, and we could talk a whole a whole subject matter about the whole thing of you know extension of the mind and how that influences our context. So, which kind of leads me to the next questions, um, leading context into relationships. And so, I always ask this question on is kind of like a consistent question because mm-hmm. I like to hear the different views that people sure. have. But it's also like something that we could ask ourselves on a daily basis. And it is what comes to mind when you hear the word relationship and how does that affect the way you interact with others? Oh, I, I love this. And I love the idea that that when these episodes come out, I get to hear other people's answers. I know. So, so as I was thinking about this, I think when I think about relationship, the first thing that comes to mind is time spent. Okay. That 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 it um relationships grow over time, right? So it's so it's it's both a connection, like you and I we've met before, but not really. Right. So like, so we have a relationship. We had a relationship before we got in this room. We have more of a relationship now than we did then. Yes. Right. And I think the more that the longer this conversation goes on, the deeper that gets. Now I think, so I think relationship gets is, is deeply connected to time spent Mm -hmm. um, because that's where we start to build um, 
reference points. Uh, we get to build humor out of that. Like I think about the f- close friends that I have, the close relationships that I have are people where we have these uh, kind of personal jokes where it's not even – you don't even need to say the whole thing. Sometimes it's just you need to look at the person in a kind of way, and it becomes an instant reference to all of these other things. Um, so, so I think when I the, so when, the first thing I think about when I think about relationship is is tied to that. It's tied to time spent then leading to all of these points of connection. Um, because that what I like about that definition is it opens up everything, everything you've ever had time any time spent with. There is relationship there, but there is. Uh, a difference in how we think about relationship over time. Yeah, yeah. I like how you explain it as over time um, because a lot of times we don't realize how important time is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the universal currency um, for anything because what are you actually spending your time on is what is going to be kind of a part of you. And if you're spending that time on good relationships, you, you're going to pick up good habits. If you're spending time with bad relationships, you're going to pick up bad habits or, you know, other things. And it just doesn't have to be relationships. It could be work that you're doing sure. or anything else like that. So that leads me to my next question is um, these relationships that we do have, this time we spend with others, um, do you categorize that in a different way? Such as like, oh, um, friendship is this much time or acquaintanceship is this much time or does it not have to do with time at all? That's a great question. I feel like it's it's not merely about a volume of time because there are people I have known for years that I don't have the same connection with. And there are sometimes people who I, it doesn't, it's like you can almost fast forward to a kind of depth. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I do categorize them. Um, uh, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I am uh, somebody who, understands myself as a socially awkward person. Um, I'm, it's why I got nervous when you asked me to do this. Cause it's like, I want like, I'm happy to do it, but I want you to know, like, I'm not great at this, but you are, no, no, but you know what I'm saying though? Like, yeah. like, like, like this is the kind of thing that stresses me out, you know, um, especially somebody that I don't know. And I like, and I, mm-hmm. I really, I really want this to go well, but, I, but, it, but like, so I know that about myself. So there's kind of there are the real part of it has to do. Okay. This may be another piece of relationship. It has to do with like how much I am willing to open up myself. Okay. So, okay. So now we're getting into questions about self, right? Yeah. Like um, there is the, the internal self of me. And um, for the time being, I'm going to say that that thing is one, right. And then there are all the different versions of myself that I like put, put forth. Yeah. Um, and the, closest relationships are the one where the veil between the internal quote unquote true me or one me is pretty thin between that and the person that I put out there. But I don't know that I have a relationship that where, and I don't even know that I want a relationship where that internal me is, is fully on display to someone. Wow. Which leads me to my next question is how do you vision your relationship with God? Because he is that someone that yes. knows you. Well, he's see, see, <laughs> God's the one who has access to yeah. that, right? Because you know, I, I as I was thinking through some of the questions that you were you you were asking about, I, I thought a lot about prayer, mm. um, and like I am somebody who struggles with like public prayer. Yep. Um, 
when I teach class, like we in CWC, we always start class with the devotions. And um, I don't know if students notice this, but every prayer I ever pray is written down. Like, yeah. because it's like, I am like, this is, there's a performative aspect to this. Yes. And like, I am not somebody who is really capable of, like, if you asked me, oh, could you say a prayer for this podcast before we get going? I'd be like, I'd rather not. And it's not because I don't think prayer is important. It's mm-hmm. just, that's not something, prayer is something that the internal me, how the internal me connects with God. Um, and I get leery about the performative nature of the external mm-hmm. prayer. Part of that might be my Catholicism, right? I, yep. One of the first things I grew up learning was prayers, but prayers you memorized. And what's interesting is I learned prayers as these sort of sacred things you say. But think about being like a second grader and learning the Hail Mary. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of words in there that yep. I had no idea what they meant. What and now I, now I look at them like, okay, yeah, I know what they're saying, but it's like, it took me a long time to know what the what the the Hail Mary or the Lord's Prayer, like what do all those words mean? And instead it was just you learn these because we pray them together. I love the collective prayer kind of thing like that. Um, but that's different. And that is almost to me as much about me connecting with the other people and us collectively connecting with God. And that's very different than the internal me, because the internal me is the darkest part of me too, mm-hmm. which I find interesting that that's the part that God gets access to. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that I don't let other people access. Yep. You know, I don't, uh, I've been married for 20 years and I don't let my wife access the darkest parts of me because I don't really like, that's the part that I wrestle with. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's not something that is on full display. And I don't imagine other people really give me access to the darkest parts of them either. Yep. Which uh, I thought you, it was interesting you bringing up the collective prayer and like it being more of a memorization thing uh, from your Catholicism background. Um, but I also, I kind of agree on the same point of like, I'd rather hear a benediction than I would public prayer. Mm-hmm. Because I know a benediction it for me is more of like, this is a group thing that we can all aspire to. And we're talking to God in a very collective way. Mm-hmm. So I kind of do resonate on that as well. I'd rather hear a benediction than a public prayer because I think prayer is very also um, a personal way to talk with God. Now, I'm not saying public prayer is bad. What I'm saying is that for me, um, a thought out, if I'm going to pray in front of a big group of people, I would be like you. I'd have it written out because I want it to be, you know, well said, and I don't want to use too many words. (laughs) Right. <laughs> it's it's one one of my favorite parts of the mass, and I, I go to a I guess it's I guess it's a Lutheran church now. It's complicated, but we do this in my in my church as well, which is we do that when we do the prayers of community, right? Where this is a the pastors up there, and they are it's it's written, and they you know they they you know are talking about praying for the sick, and they name those people. As, but then there's this moment where they say, okay, and then for all of the other sort of unspoken prayers in our heart, mm-hmm. and then we sit silently for two minutes. I love that. And it's like nobody says anything, and then after about two minutes, they finish the prayer. And it's like, to me, that's the magic. Mm-hmm. Like that's the part right there where it's like you are faced with the – you're in this collective group, but it's everything's now – everyone is turned internally. And like I become utterly unaware of the other people around me at that moment, and it's like, all right, this is this is my moment to – to connect in a different kind of way while still part of this collective group. It's my favorite part of the church service. Yeah. And I think that's why I think as Christians, we should go to different tradition churches, Lutheran, Catholic, uh, Baptist, Pentecost, whatever part of it. I think they all provide a window into ways we can be in relationship with God. 
Um, with being a historian, how do you do you think history and being a historian can help us understand relationships? Absolutely. I, I think because uh, the main thing that I think if we're doing history right, the main um, muscle that we're fl- we should be flexing, I think, is empathy. Mm-hmm. Right, and empathy is seeing something from another's point of view. It's, it's, it's you know, it's trying on their shoes and walking around. It's trying to understand even this person you might disagree with. It's like, well, can I? I don't have to. I don't have to ever agree with them, but can I understand why they're saying what they're saying, even if what they're saying is something that's dangerous and damaging? And empathy is not the same as saying it's justifying it or it's yep. forgiving it, but it's like. All right, can I? I just I need to understand the perspective because I think there is also something that we share as bearers of the image of God, you know. And it's like I need to know about what led this person here and what led this person there, um, in order to understand what's leading me in places as well. So I actually I think um, I also feel like um, when I think about Scripture, you know, I think about Christ telling us I'm supposed to love my neighbor and love my enemy. I think the initial interpretation is that, well, my neighbor is the person in front of me, mm-hmm. right? And potentially my enemy is the person in front of me. Mm-hmm. No offense. Um, but, <laughs> all taken. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but it's also all of the people who've ever come before me. Yep. I need to treat them, the people I'm studying, in the same way Christ is telling me to 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 treat, to treat the people around me. Um, and I think that helps me move out of a out of a seat of judgment. Cause I think the historian, uh, if we're not paying attention, can, can, can sit on the seat of the judge and be like, mm-hmm. okay, well now we have some distance from this. Who are the, and this is oversimplistic, but who are the good guys and who are the bad guys who got it right. And who got it wrong. It's like, well, that's not a, that's not that interesting. And B that's not what I think we're here to do. Yeah. And brings you back to like the whole idea of might makes right. Right. You know, right. in history. And like, we had to be careful of that when it came to actually uncovering history after the victors told it. Mm-hmm. And we're like, wait a minute, that's not all that happened. So I think that's a very good example of like as historians and as humans, when we look back for context and relationships, we need to view it from a point of empathy, understanding where they came from, and then using that. And I would also say uh, in the same way, if we're thinking about relationships, right, we're thinking about like uh, – you know, you walk into a room and you're noticing the people who are coming up to you and talking, but like we should also be paying attention to the people we're not encountering in the room. Right. Um, And this is true about history as well. Like any good historian will say, well, you need to listen for the silences. Who are the people you're not hearing? I remember once at the end of the semester, I um, was, I made a graph for students of Every basically, it, it it was a bar graph that had every century that we covered in CWC going back to the fifth uh, century BC up to the I think the twentieth century, and it was just a bar graph of how many people we had named who lived in each century, and it's comical. It's like oh, in the uh, the fourth uh, century BC is kind of a banner century because we name four people who lived in that century. <laughs> Do you know how many people were alive in the West, in any city, yeah. how many people were alive? And we named four people. And that's a pretty good, there's also centuries where we name one person or I think like the 900s, the CWC, we don't name a person who lived in the 900s. That's a hundred years of people living in the West and we don't even name anybody, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, 
we need to, so I put that up just to have them be aware. It's like, yes, we've learned a lot. We've talked about a lot, but we, there's also so much we didn't talk about. Yep. And some of it is we don't have time, but some of it is there are also silences in moments. And there are silences in terms of marginalized communities as well, marginalized people as well. So I think that's another piece of thinking about relationship is who are the people who aren't given a seat at the table to speak and thinking about your relationship to them. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so we keep talking about context and history, studying the past, relationships, I've come across this new word called context collapse, and I uh, was very interested in it at first, so I did a little bit of research on it. And uh, the textbook uh, definition is basically the shift in how an individual presents to a large, often unknown audience as the result of the loss of cues based on his or her relationships to an individual or small known group. Um, in other words, the flattening of multiple audiences into a single context, which is kind of what you were talking about when you were talking about like the marginalized mm -hmm. or like something like that. Um, I like to describe it in a way um, that makes a lot of sense to people because we can always, it's become a buzzword because of social media. Mm -hmm. So I like to use it in non-internet social media context because I feel the best examples are the ones that have been consistent through history. And I think marriage is one of those great examples where it's kind of been consistent on how marriages have been carried out. It's always the joining of two families. You know, there may be friends involved. So I always bring up my example as a marriage or a wedding specifically. And I say that everyone has a work friend that they act a certain way around. Family, they act a certain way around. Um, close friends, they act another way around. And not to mention all the intricacies in those groups. You know, it's just not one friend. You're interacting with their friends who are interacting with their friends, so on and so forth. Um, so what can happen at a wedding is that you have a combination of all these people because it's all people you love and you have a relationship with. And now you're in front of those people, say like at the dinner the dinner party now, the wedding ceremony's over. You are the only ones talking. So there's not much collapse there. But once you start talking in front of everyone, what stories are okay? What stories aren't? Mm -hmm. There's this awkward tension and you don't know how to act because different faces of yourself are in different audiences. And so this is context collapse. It can be seen in anywhere in life. Um, You're describing you, my nightmare. Like yes. that's, I am, I am somebody who very much likes to keep things separate. Well, you, you mentioned that. You said I put on uh, different faces mm -hmm. for different friends. I mean, you put on a different face for your spouse. Mm -hmm. um, you have a different veil um, for different people, mm -hmm. as you were describing. And um, a previous guest, uh, Zach Walker, I had on here, he mentioned it as, uh, I think it was from C.S. Lewis, um, he said. I can't remember the exact detail, but he said that um, it's basically people unlock a certain part of you, mm -hmm. you know, um, that maybe um, another person can't, you know. And so my question is, um, even though that this is a newish, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. word, um, how can we see this in historical context, such as um, might makes right or marginalized audiences? Hmm. That's a that's a a really loaded question. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, well, we, I mean, we definitely have. I'm trying to think how this, how this applies to sort of thinking about um, uh, sort of which voices get. Heard. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me a little bit more about kind of where where 
like what you're thinking with that because because I because like I see lots of applications as I'm trying to think yeah. about it in specifically in terms of this. Um, so I'm interested in a lot of like um, how context collapse of um, in a relational setting uh-huh. can be seen for um, historians maybe giving evidence. Um, they're getting all these audiences, and now we have to make it one single audience. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think I think part of it is it's 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 actually this this weird. Um, I don't know I'm if I'm to, describing you it actually. Right. You're, no, you're doing great. I'm trying to think of how to describe what. There's another issue when we think about history mm-hmm. that applies to context, and it's like so. It's there is both a collapse, but there's also um, what I was saying about sort of. Uh, a vacuum of context. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes. to me, that's the bigger issue in history is that like, uh, and I see this and, you know, and, and I'm, I'm going to talk about students. I teach mostly first year students. So these mm-hmm. are usually people, their first year out of high school or sometimes they're high school students, right? If they're PSEO students. And there just is this, this sense of like, like I will sometimes read students writing and just, and what I will say to myself is like, this is written as if all of these things are in a vacuum, as if you read Benedict of Nursia, who is, uh, you know, a fifth, sixth century Italian monk living in the wake of the fall of the Roman Empire, as if there was no context and he was just saying these words. And it's like, well, yeah, but you like and then, and then it's, it's possible to sort of um, either weaponize his words mm-hmm. or to demonize his words. And yep. it's like, well, OK, we need to we need to understand we, even when he says this word, what is he actually talking about? Because he's not really talking about what, how you're using this. You know, you're trying. We we um uh, have an assignment that we we've done for years at the end of the semester. We're actually doing something a little bit different this year, where we we have students deal with a contemporary issue and they need to draw on these people from the past. And the the trap students fall in is exactly that, which is they will they will read the works of somebody and they'll just. It's all it's almost like proof texting. They'll just like pull out a line out of context or a you know part of a paragraph out of context and say, Well, this is why Benedict would support this. And you're like, I know a lot about Benedict. And that's the opposite of but but it's like, mm-hmm. but technically those words work to do this. So so I feel like there is some of that stuff where um where where there's this vacuum of context. And I think that that creates the possibility to demonize or weaponize the past uh, in some pretty dangerous ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's why it's why I think studying history matters so much um, because I think whenever we talk about um, historical figures, whenever we read the works of historical figures, read fiction from history, it's like or you know or, or, or literature from history, I think it's important I think um, context is so so very crucial. Um, I was I'm um, Doing a podcast tomorrow morning. I do a, a movie podcast with uh, uh, one of the deans here, Barrett Fisher, who's a former um, literature professor here. Okay. And each week he recommends a movie, and then we talk about it because he knows a lot about movies, and I don't know anything. Um, <laughs> and we're watching. We watched this movie from 1946 called "The Best Years of Our Lives," which I had seen in the late 90s, I think, when I was in college. Um, and I didn't think much of it. I didn't make much of it. And I think I was watching it much like I'm talking about, out of context. I watched it. This week, I'm 44 years old, and I know a lot more about America in 1946, and it's one of the most interesting movies I've seen because it's wrestling with this post-war context. I mean, and what's what I'm saying is not like a deep reading. It's very obviously yeah. doing that. But when I was 
19 years old, I had no sense of to make sense of it. So it just felt kind of melodramatic and like not that interesting. And now I feel deeply like this is this really fascinating text to think about this. So, so I, I think to that degree, and that's a little bit different than collapse of context. Um, but I do think uh, we, our relationship with people of the past necessitates us paying a great deal of tench, uh, attention to their context. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, I was trying to um, envision what you were basically saying um, of this vacuum and this content uh, context of being in a vacuum, like you said, this 1940s. And I feel like we could do that with anything. Mm-hmm. Um, we could take a piece of work from the past and be like, mm, that's weird. And it's kind of looking at it through our lens. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of what's going on with a whole bunch of things in our society right now. And I'm like, aren't, aren't these supposed to be the academics? Aren't these supposed to be the ones who research this stuff? But I keep reading these things and I'm like, that that seems totally out of context. That seems like we're putting our views mm-hmm. into their And it's where lives. the empathy comes in, right? It's the mm-hmm. empathy of like, okay, I need to try as much as possible to take off all of the things that shape the way I view the world. And maybe putting on their shoes isn't the, maybe it's putting on their glasses or something. It's mm-hmm. like, can I try to see this through their lens? Although that's also very difficult. I mean, we were earlier this week, uh, uh, Chris Garrett and I were talking to a group of high schoolers who are at Maranatha who are taking CWC. And we were talking mm-hmm. about Isaac Newton. And I was trying to make the case for um, why Isaac Newton is so important. And I said something that I've never said before, but I'm like, now it's like, to me, it crystallizes why he's important, which is even as somebody, as a historian who studies the Middle Ages, who teaches about the Middle Ages, in a world after Newton, I can only pretend and play act that I understand a medieval person. I am so shaped by one particular particular worldview that begins with Newton and mm-hmm. then is shaped over the next 400 years um, that it's like he has severed my tie to the Middle Ages in a way where I can I could study the Middle Ages forever, but I'm never going to be a medieval person because I just can't take off my context. I can try, and I, and I think the important thing is that I try to do that, but I also need to acknowledge the degree to which I, I I carry this fault of my context is part of who I am. It's mm-hmm. not just the lenses that I wear, but it's probably the eyes in my head. Mm-hmm. And I can't take my eyes out, you know? So like, but I but if I can acknowledge it, I can start to at least see the space between what I'm reading and how I'm reading it. Yeah, and we can see that with the context of how relationships were. Mm-hmm. Marriage today was not what marriage was back when Christianity was starting. Christianity was like, no, marriage, icky. No, this whole um, sex negativity thing in the uh, uh, Christian church when it was, um, you know, became the Roman religion. And they were, like, looking to people and were like, oh, we have no more more, uh, uh, martyrs, like actual, like, death martyrs. And they're like, how can we be martyrs in different ways? Mm -hmm. And so, like, marriage was this state thing, was not even connected to religion at all. And then it, when the church became into power after the fall of Rome, they're like, oh, now we have to deal with state issues. Mm-hmm. And so marriage became a state issue and they dealt with it that way. And like looking at just like marriage in general as a concept, we cannot project what we see as marriage today and put it on them, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that's with any relationship. The way we think about romantic relationships is totally different from people in the 1950s. Sure. You know, and so, like, when we start to look at 
um, love songs from that time or romantic poetry or anything like that. We have to come from that context of where they were in history and what were the societal, cultural things that were influencing them. Mm -hmm. So very good point. Context is key, as some would say. Um, Do you think um, there's context collapse in our relationship with God? Because he sees everything. So we don't have different faces for God. We may perceive like we could have different faces for God, but we don't. So is there context collapse with God? And is this a good thing? Or is this something that is just going to be with us forever, no matter what? It's super interesting (laughs) because uh, earlier on when I was talking about the me, like the internal me, Mm -hmm. I said, I think I said, at least I hope I said, for the time being, I'm going to say that that thing is one. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that thing is one. I think that just like there are walls and faces that I put up out here, you know, there's a faith that I a face that I bring to Seth, right? And I'm kind of building that face as we're talking right now, yeah. right? Um, I think that there are face, and, 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 and you know more about psychology than I do because I've never taken a psychology course, and I realize I'm talking to somebody who, who, who has taken a lot. I think there are probably faces and walls that I put up inside of myself. Um, Now, I have to believe that God, I don't have to believe, I think I believe that God accesses all of that. Like he's the the one being who can break through that. Um, And if there is any sense that there is like an authentic one me, you know, it is, it is actually the, this, it is all the multiple ways because it is the internal one, but it's also the external one. Cause I, I firmly believe that um, what we do externally matters and the faces we put out there matter. I mean, this is where, uh, you know, I mentioned how important pietism is to me. You know, part of the origins of pietism is that uh, someone like Philip Spainer is trying to take Christianity out of our heads, right? And to say like, well, this is actually, Christianity exists in action, not just in Mm -hmm. thoughts and beliefs. Um, And, when I think about my relationship with God, like I think about how God accesses the internal me, but I think about the way that I access God. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm going to say this and I'm going to see how I feel about it. <laughs> um, uh, I think a lot more about how I interact with other people. I think about when Christ, you know, says things like whatever you do to the least of these you do unto me. Right. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like God accesses me, the internal me, but I access God through the external like, like my, the way that I can interact with God, I, I guess I can do this. I, I mean, there is this internal prayer life, but I'm kidding myself if I think that that's the only relationship I have with God. Mm-hmm. I think the way that I uh, interact with my neighbor, my brother, my sister, my enemy, that that's also my relationship with God. Um, so, I, so I think, um, I think this whole s- idea about context and faces and walls and what do we unlock and what do we not unlock? God's part of all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, uh, and, and, and I think the more that I think about my inner, my active interaction with God has as much to do with how I hopefully live a life of love and forgiveness actively in the world, right? As much as this dialogue I have with God or Sometimes it feels like this monologue I have with God, right? Because I mean, I'm I'm going to tell you, I I he doesn't I don't hear him speak to me, right? I have moments where I felt him, 
but but it's like but but it, but there but but it's not it's not a dialogue it's not i say this and i get this answer back right but but i sometimes get that answer back in the world mm-hmm. i get that i get the answer back i think from god in my interaction with the world so so i actually think god collapses this whole sense of the internal me the external me the public the private the different faces that that god is the being who collapses all of that mm-hmm. and do you think um, understanding that God does collapse all of that, do you think that is healthy for us to understand when it comes to our relationship with God? That it's helpful to understand that mm-hmm. he collapses it? or Yeah, that he, he, no matter what face we believe we can give to God, he knows it all. And do you think that is helpful to build our relationship with God, knowing that consciously being aware that he I think so. Him. I think so because because again, if I think part of my relationship with God is how I interact with the people around me, like like me being aware of that then affects the way that I interact with the people around me. And I hope that it points me to the things that I feel like he's calling me to do, calling me to live a life of love and forgiveness. I mean, I will say um, uh, I am maybe the least theological professor you're going to encounter. Like, like I am, I am, uh, that's a weird statement to say. I, I don't know that I mean that, but we're all theologians according to the theologian right. that I interviewed. Right, right, right. <laughs> what, what I mean by that is like, so when I first started, this is actually, this is a story about faces we put up. When I first started teaching at Bethel, I was 24 years old. Uh, I don't know how old you are. You're probably in your early twenties. Okay. So like imagine three years from now teaching at Bethel, like, like it was like, I was really young. And I remember being terrified that students would come up and ask me theological questions as if I had some kind of authority. And I was like, for one thing, it's like, I am three years older than you. Like, I'm not that much older than you. But I also was afraid that I was, whatever was in me was wrong and that I was going to tell them the wrong thing. And at one level, that was going to lead me to getting fired. And at another level, it was going to lead me to like, you know, damning their soul to hell or something. So like, I was really nervous about that. The thing that's happened to me as I've gotten older uh, is I, I feel like I've come up with ways that I answer those questions. And partially it's partially because I've realized the ways that I answer those questions to myself is whatever theological issue um, I wrestle with, and this is what this is, and this is what I would tell a student. You know, like let's uh, let's pick something that's maybe not that important, like uh, uh, predestination versus mm-hmm. free will. Like, okay, I'm going to argue that's not an, that's not important, right? Maybe it's super important. I don't know, but. <laughs> Whatever you believe, if like let's, let's say you're really wrestling with that, or let's say I'm really wrestling with like, well, what is is salvation based on my work, or is it based on God's work, or is it this combination? I sort of come back to, does whichever belief does it lead me to live a life of love and forgiveness? If it does, then I should probably keep following that path and see where it leads me. If it leads me away from living a life of love and forgiveness then it feels like it's leading me away from the gospel. So even, so, so I probably like, that's probably a sign that at least for me, that theological belief is not helpful. Um, Because again, I think there is far more to, when I read the gospels, I see Christ not saying a lot about what's really important is that you figure me out and you figure out the mechanics of salvation. I see a lot of importance about repent about love and forgive. So whatever theological position I'm going to hold, it's going to, that's going to be my compass. It's just like, if this, because if I'm going to err, if I'm going to be wrong theologically, which I'm sure I am, 
if I'm wrong in like, it's like, oh, I got that one. I got that idea wrong. But if it led me to live a life of love and forgiveness, like I'd rather err in that direction. Uh, because again, I think that's how I interact with God. Like, I think that's a big piece of it. Yeah. I think it's always good to err on the side of what the gospels say, because um, living, following Christ, following Jesus, uh, he lived on that side. So, and when people were to bring up theological debates, he would always bring it back to those ideas. Mm -hmm. So I think it's uh, very important um, as well. Um, When it comes to putting on faces, um, do you think it's a good thing to have different faces for different people or are you more on the side of, no, we should act one way with everyone and that's our true self because if we're actually, you know, being our true selves, we wouldn't have one face. So in the article you sent me, there's this great bizarre quote from Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, I was about to bring it up, actually. I didn't know if I wanted to bring it up, but I was going to. So, so he was talking, this was early Facebook. He was talking about mm-hmm. content collapse, and he was celebrating, or context collapse, sorry. Mm-hmm. And he was celebrating it. And he was saying, well, you know, the days of having these different personas and having this sort of divided self is, those are gone. And that he was speaking to how this collapse of context was going to lead to a kind of authenticity, mm-hmm. which is absurd. It's, it's a great quote, but it's absurd, right? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and I think, partially, I think, I think there's this myth of authenticity. Like, what is the authentic self? Because just like I was saying, I, there is this internal me, and it's like, well, okay, is that the authentic me? It's like, if that's the authentic me, then who is this person who's living out in the world? Because that's me too, mm-hmm. you know? So I think that's where this, this notion of if God collapses all of these walls— it doesn't mean he's tearing them down. He's just saying all of this is you. I don't think that I should put the same face on for my students as I do for my kids, especially my kids when they were three years old. Like they needed, I was playing a different role for them. Mm-hmm. So therefore I had a different face. I don't think that that's inherently duplicitous and wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and I think, I mean, the other piece of all of this is the is this collapse of this notion of the public and the private, mm-hmm. you know. And and I actually do think, you know, like I'm a fairly private person in lots of ways, um, and I do think that there are there are things that exist within my immediate family. There are things between my wife and I that are authentically part of me, but they're not anything that I would ever share with anyone else. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I'm it's not a dark secret that I'm hiding. It's just that one's not for you, mm-hmm. you know? But again, what is, so So I think it comes down to what is the authentically, the authentic me. And if it's just the internal me, that's not authentically me either. Cause that's, sometimes that's only where the dark stuff is. And it's like, so am I saying I am authentically dark and everything else that I am is, is, is me pretending? I don't think so. I think, I think that, so, so I think, the question of whether it's good or bad, I don't know that that's even an important question. Yeah. I think that that I think it's it's the myth of authenticity, you know, that that there is an authentic. I think all of them are part of this multitude that we contain. Um, and I think as long as we occasionally are able to see that and acknowledge that, you know, that's the thing. Because I also think there is probably a whole lot of us that we don't have access to. Yep. 
I mean, there, so there's probably part of us that nobody has access to, including us. There's probably part of me that the people I'm in relationship with have access to that I don't have. Mm-hmm. How often have you been told something about yourself that you didn't know? But like the people around you are like, well, you know, Seth, you're this. And you're just like, I, I didn't, I, I've never seen that in me. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's something I'm denying about myself or maybe it's something I never knew. Yep. Um, but that's part of me too. And that's not even a face that I'm aware of putting up, you know? So, so I think, um, I would say, I think we contain those multitudes and God collapses those barriers, but I don't think those barriers are inherently bad and they might even be good. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, I, I personally believe that having different faces is not a bad, I, bad thing. Um, because it allows us to be kind of what people need in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we meet people where they are. And if we're 100% always the same all the time and we pick one way to be, we'll never meet people where they are. Mm. So I think that if we're personifying God, um, because it's easy to do because it's so hard to understand God as no outside of our our world, our context, what we can experience physically, emotionally, whatever, whatever. So if we're personifying God and he also was fully human through Jesus, then he probably experienced those different faces for one, but he probably also like inherently put that in us. I I think sometimes because if he is going to meet us where we're at, he has to, you know, he can't be all wrathful and vengeance and like the mm-hmm. judge all the time. He is all those things all the time. Like we are all those things all the time. What we choose to present to someone else is what they need at that moment in time. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. And so like, that's what I'm trying to tackle on this podcast is how can we understand relationships with others, relationships within ourself um, to understand our relationship with God and how how God loves, how he loves, and he meets people where they're at, and that's how he loves. And how can we use what we know about ourselves, what we know about psychology, history, context? We need to meet them where they're at. And I think that is very, I just had that realization just now. So, you know, it's not going to be the first time I've had realizations on this <laughs> podcast, and it probably won't be the last. So what what is your idea of what I've just said about the whole thing? I really like that. I mean, yeah. I like, 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 I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so kind of, pro- I'm, a, I'm a slow processor. So that, like, that's it's okay. gonna be the kind of thing where like an hour from now, I'm gonna <laughs> want to write you a letter and be like, this was really in-. like, yeah. yeah, no, like, like that's, I, I think that that there, I had a, a teacher when I was in at the Oregon Extension named John Linton, and mm-hmm. and he. You know, we've been talking about sort of the, in CMC, we talk about the mind and the heart. And like, this is this big kind of like dualism between uh, like a theological Christianity and like a pietistic Christianity. And uh, the, the-, the theology professor there was a guy named John Linton. And he always, he, he, he made me realize that there's another part besides the mind and the heart. And he would say it's the gut, right? And it's just like, like something about what you're saying, like sits right there. Like it feel like that feels right. Now we could maybe sit here and pick apart Okay, but here's the problem with what you said, and there might be problems with that. But like, but I would say like my my gut reaction to that is like something feels really right about that. Even that there that there is something that there is something right there. Yeah, we could probably talk about it some other time <laughs> when we have more thought process. Because I just right, thought about right. it too. So 
But it's very interesting to bring human topics and try to understand them, and then use those topics to kind of understand God. Well, and what I like about it, what I what I like about it is that it speaks to what I was saying before about we interact with God by interacting with the world, and we interact mm-hmm. with the world through these faces, not not uh, in spite of them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I so actually. Yeah, the more I'm thinking about what you said, it's like, yeah, I might steal that. That that's really good. I like that. That that's <laughs> like a, that's a helpful way to think about this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think content, uh, context within social groups is very important for me mm-hmm. because I can tell things to my friends that I wouldn't tell to my parents, or tell things to you know my pastor that I wouldn't tell to my friends, and I think that is a way where God can meet us through these people, like you said. Um, in a different way every time that we may need at that moment. Yeah, because I mean, if you think about it, there's there are times where like you need to express a doubt you have or mm-hmm. a pain you have, and if the idea is you can only do that, you can only actually have that doubt or that pain if you express it to everyone. Otherwise, you're putting up a face. Is like, well, that doesn't feel very much like like life. Yeah, <laughs> you know that 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 feels like something else, and that feels dangerous. Yeah. Definitely. And that's where I'm totally like the whole Mark Zuckerberg celebrating the idea of this. Um, you know, there's no there's no more dualism. And I think there is a place and time for dualism. Mm-hmm. And if you have social media and you're posting something and then all of a sudden you regret it and you're like, oh, that is that idea of like, oh, wait, I forgot to think about this group, mm-hmm. you know, but you don't have to do that in everyday life because you're only with that group one like. Right. In that group, the only time that you're actually together, then it's awkward, and then you actually formulate your thoughts differently. So I have to ask you this. As somebody who is a different generation than me, are you somebody who uses social media? Um, or if you uh, – maybe I'll ask you differently. What social media platforms do you do you interact with? I, uh, I have had them all, basically. I have been on Reddit, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all of them. And I, from a young age – age I never really liked them I never knew why I didn't like them I was like this feels like not me mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you know this idea of like what I post this I was thinking to myself when I was younger I was like this this isn't all of me and if this platform is pretending to be all of me then I have to post every aspect of myself and I feel like that's something that I don't want to do and I felt that from a young age, so I stopped using um, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and all those. Um, the only ones that I have on my phone have the notifications turned off, by the way. Okay. Um, is Snapchat um, and Instagram. And the only reason I have them is for communication purposes only mm. because certain people don't like giving out their phone numbers for privacy reasons. Understandable. And email can be clunky and big and, like, really, you know, messy sometimes. And sometimes you just need to go, hey, I need this for tonight. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to give out your phone number, so I respect the privacy part. That's the only reason I use those platforms. So I'm very different from probably my generation who is very involved in Facebook and whatever, whatever. So what about yourself? Uh, I don't. Like, I have a a Facebook account, and the last time I posted something was – 2014 maybe. Um, and that was something about the movie, the karate kid. Like, and then the time before that was probably five years before that. Like I just don't, I use it to mm-hmm. kind of 
keep track of some of my former students and some high school friends, but I don't, I don't really post anything on there. Uh, I have a Twitter account that I've never posted on. Um, the, what's interesting though, is that you do do this podcasting, right? Mm -hmm. I do this a lot. I mean, I, I was telling you, this isn't even my first podcast today. Yeah. Um, I actually do a podcast about a Twitter account. Um, uh, one of the things on our, on our network. Um, but I don't, what I like about this is that this, at least within the context of like, like this is something slow. This is something that uh, I was actually curious about, like, how long are we going to go? Is this going to be like a 15, 20 minute mm -hmm. thing? Or are we going to have a real conversation? We're having a real conversation. Yeah. So this has some context. And actually, even the uh, the uh, the podcast that I listen to, um, I'm a weirdo with that because you know, if you tell me your podcast is an hour and a half long, I'm excited. If you tell me it's three hours, then I'm really in, especially <laughs> if you tell me there's 200 episodes, because then I want to start at the beginning because I want to be part of this relationship. Whenever I've mm -hmm. done, I've, I've led a lot of workshops on podcasting. I've taught a lot of people about this. And what I always tell them is this is going to be successful if the people listening are into the relationship between the people talking. Um, and it almost doesn't matter what you're talking about if this relationship works. So for a podcast like yours, because you are a host bringing on guests, this is going to work, uh, in my mind, less about is your did you pick the right topic and more about are people interested in spending time with you? Because think of how intimate listening to a podcast is. Very few people mm -hmm. listen to these in their car. They're usually getting as close to we can as plugging this into their head. Right. They put in earphones or earbuds or, or AirPods or anything like that. Right. Like they're putting it as close to their brain as they can and playing it. That's a pretty intimate relationship you're having with them and with and, and with your guests. So, like, that's the, the type of um, it's not exactly social media, but that's the, that's the kind of thing I'm more interested in. I'm more interested in. I need to sp I want to spend a lot of time with this people with these people. I want to be part of this relationship as much as I can. Um, but in terms of you know, the more kind of fleeting things. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of, what's odd is it ends up being more about putting up faces, about I'm curating an image of myself and I just have no interest in that. And I have no interest in the image that people are curating for themselves. I would rather know fewer people, but know them well yeah. than like follow a bunch of people, but don't not really know if I'm accessing them at all. Yeah. So we're going to kind of get up to some wrap up questions here because mm -hmm. we've talked about so much and I love it all. Um, so I have just a couple more questions for you. And one of them is how can we use history and context to further our relationships with others and God? Uh, well, again, I think it's, I think empathy is a big piece of it. I, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, so I'm going to, I'm going to circle back to that. I think Full like, circle. yeah, I think like studying history as a way to understand the human story to understand. I mean, I always tell students that the, the first day of class, uh, I read to them a, a, a passage from a, a guy named Frederick Beekner, who's a 20th century novelist. Um, and it's from, from one of his memoirs. Um, so it's not even what I've actually never read one of his novels. I've only read <laughs> memoirs, but, but it ends up being this book about where he's like struggling to try to tell his story. And he's like, well, why does this even, why does it matter that I'm telling my story? Who cares? And he says, you know, my story matters not because it is mine, but because if I tell it anything like right, the chances are you'll recognize that it's also yours. So I think as people studying history, as people teaching history, as people curious about history, I, I always encourage my students to look for 
among other things, to look for uh, what Barbara Touchman would call a distant mirror, something that's far away from you in terms of time and space and culture, but where you feel this kind of resonance in your chest when it's like, like I will tell you the first time I read Augustine's Confessions, um, and every time I've read it, it is such a strange experience because I couldn't be more different than Augustine. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's living 1,700 years before me, 1,600 years before me, in a different time, a different place, a different culture. But I read about the questions that he's interested in, the questions he's struggling with, what's complicated about him with faith and what his conversion looks like. And it's just like, I cannot believe how much it feels like he's peered into that part of me that I don't show to other people. And it's so, so it's like, that's this moment that maybe even stretches beyond empathy where it's almost like he's the one empathizing with me, not me with not, not merely me with him. Um, so that's, that's sort of an extreme example of that. But I think, um, I think history can teach us to empathize, can teach us to look for the image of God in each other. So if we're talking about relationship with God, if you're looking for the image of God in the other who's in front of you or the other that you're studying, how is that not a relationship with God? Mm -hmm. How is that not part of a relationship with God? You know, and again, I, 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 I'm, I'm a broken record here, but, but it is about how I interact with the people with the, the, with the people around me. You know, I will say that those moments in the day. So the other half of my job is I do academic counseling. So there are moments in the day where I'm spent, I got nothing left and a student comes to my door and the thing that I want to do is shut the door and be like, <laughs> no. And, but, but it's, it, those are the moments when it's like, this is the image of God too. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I need to do is acknowledge that. I need to acknowledge that the peace of me, uh, I'm quoting from Henry now in here, the peace of God that's in me recognizes the peace of God that's in you. Right. And, and like, and that, that, as Nowen talks about, that that means that the space between us is holy ground, and I need to acknowledge that. So, and and I think history helps us to do that because it gives us a chance to study and relate to people uh, without having to have the intensity of what we're doing right here, staring each other in the mm -hmm. eyes, which can be intimidating, right? History can help us do this and can help us understand the context of where what leads to where we are today. I mean, I think it's one I think big plays, narrative exactly, of who we are exactly. and who God is, yep. especially. Absolutely. Um, which you've kind of already answered my last question, which is what's a discipline people can carry on, like maybe throughout this week um, or the remainder of this week um, to help them build the relationship with others and God? Let me tell you what I was thinking about. So, because you, you had this question in here and I was like, when I first read it, um, or it's one of the questions you had here. So I might not even answer the question you just asked, but it's a question you asked on, on the mm -hmm. thing you sent me. And, and I, first I was like, I have nothing to say to this. And then I thought about something I've been feeling, but I've never put into words. Um, and I feel like I'm going to just, just like you kind of throw an idea, I'm going to say this mm -hmm. and maybe a week from now I'll be like, I don't agree with that. Um, then you'll have to come back on and tell right. me. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, uh, I think about the word fulfillment a lot, mm -hmm. um, you know, that that this is thing we aspire to, to have a life that's meaningful, which means it's a life of fulfillment. Um, and, and that has the word fill in it, right? Um, and so, so to be full, to, to, to fill up. Um, and I will say one of my thoughts, especially in the last 
10 years uh, in my life is that like, I think there's a large degree to which a lot of life is unfulfilling. Um, and we, as- we aspire to things, we work towards things, we strive towards things. And even when we uh, achieve those goals, very often they're unfulfilling or their their fulfillment's only limited, right? Now that doesn't mean I that doesn't mean I think we shouldn't aspire to things, we mm-hmm. shouldn't strive for things. But I think it's important that we know that most of those things we're striving for are not going to be fulfilling. They're not going to fill us, right? But that's not the that's not the observation. That's that's an easy observation. The easy thing up, I was right. thinking about was like, okay, when do I feel closest to God? Mm-hmm. And it's actually not in the moments those rare moments in my life when I feel felt fulfilled. Mm-hmm. It's actually the opposite. It's the moments in the life when I feel most emptied out. Um, uh, like I said, those days when you feel like you got nothing left and another student comes in or a day when uh, I'm, these are all in terms of work, but it need not be about work. Like where it's just like, I have given every ounce of what I have and I am utterly exhausted. And it's like, that's the moment I feel closest to God. So what I'm starting to think is maybe my problem, and maybe this is nobody else's problem, is that I've been chasing the feeling of being filled. Mm-hmm. When instead, what I need to acknowledge is that actually the power is in feeling emptied, in feeling like I have given everything that I that I that I can, and maybe that's feeling a resonant moment with God who pours Himself out as well. Not that I'm. Now, I, as I'm saying this, I'm feeling like, hey, is this am I, this is dangerous in what I'm what I'm saying here? But but there is this sense of like that is feeling like um, that's maybe the the most like proper good feeling that I have instead of feeling like I want to do this thing so then I feel like I'm complete and I'm filled up. Instead, it's like maybe I should strive for those moments when I've given everything I feel like I can give today, and maybe there's an opportunity to give a little bit more. I mean, my, my heroes are people who are, you know, who are, are monks, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, um, I, I, there's this, uh, this, this Finnish word, uh, Sisu, um, which means, uh, it's, it's, I don't, I'm not Finnish, but apparently like this is the Finnish characteristic, um, which is, it's the, it's described as the ability to hang by a rope for, uh, over, over a bottomless pit for five minutes longer than you thought was humanly possible. And then upon hanging on for five minutes longer, more than you thought was humanly possible to hang on for five days more. And it's like this kind of like continually trying to cultivate this, the sense of like, how much can I empty myself? Can I, how much can I give? Um, and th- okay, I'm making myself sound better than I am, but like, but that's, but that's like, that's the thing that I realized like, oh, maybe that's what I want to chase a little bit more instead of trying to be filled. It's trying to like, how much can I f- feel emptied? Can I feel like I've, like, I haven't held something back mm-hmm. um, that and I get- knowing that God is always going to be pouring into you. Exactly. Or, or in that, in that, in that also that that's what God does, right? Mm-hmm. That God God's love comes in him emptying himself for us, right? Even though he's a bottomless pit of poor. Sure, 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 sure. Right, but 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 there but there is this like yeah. again, I don't know what I think about this. This is just something as I was scribbling down as I was writing and Go it's ahead. like, huh. I want to spend like the next the next year as we're approaching the new year. I want to spend the next year like thinking about like what if this was a year of of saying I want to try to 
continue to empty myself. And like that, that's actually the thing I'm trying to do mm-hmm. um, more as like a, a, a discipline than like a, this is the, the be all end all, you know, truth of, of anything. But it's like, what could I learn from that instead of trying to find a kind of like moment of peace and fulfillment? What if it's a moment of empty um, and like, and, and, and that God is there too, because that also attaches to, I think relationship with God through relationship with others around me through that kind of emptying and knowing that people are emptying their themselves for me constantly. It's, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I am far from a saint. (laughs) I am not that person, but, but it's like that, that like that maybe that's what a relationship looks like. It's about giving and giving and giving. And I want to try that. Yeah. Well, that was a great way to end the episode. A thought that we could think about more. So, and probably disagree with. <laughs> well, we'll find out. And if you do, or you do not disagree with, uh, you'll just have to let me know by coming back on the podcast, right. and we'll That's talk right. more. But uh, thank you, um, Professor Mulberry, for coming on here, getting a little bit out of your comfort zone, but also excited about it, um, and joining me on this journey of talking about relationships, God, people, anything under the sun that isn't new but can be new sometimes. So, thank you again. It was a pleasure. Yep. Have a great night.